Most of you know that, that when Jesus first appeared on the scene for the public to see him, when he first got into Galilee and started wandering through the streets and preaching, the, the first words out of his mouth were, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Or in, in Matthew it'll say kingdom of heaven. But it, it, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, or you might see in your translation the kingdom of God has drawn near. And uh, this is an extremely important phrase that Jesus starts out his ministry with, and I have been, I've been threatening now for several weeks to take you through a series that is on the theme of, of the kingdom of God, and uh, the time has come to do that, to make good on my threat. Um, I guess it's a promise more than a threat, but, but, but we're going to be talking about God's kingdom today. Uh, and, and as we do, the, the, the first thing that I think we need to admit to ourselves is that the word kingdom is kind of a funny word for us, right? I mean, outside of church, when do we even say the word kingdom in the United States of America, right? It's not just, I mean, in most of the world, kings and queens are a thing of the past. And in places where they have kings and queens, places like England, and I think Sweden might still have a king technically, and Thailand, I think, has a king, but he's having some problems right now. So the, the, the kings and queens in this world are either kind of under the gun, or in most places, they're just figureheads. They don't have any power. In America, we got rid of our king, what, almost 250 years ago, and we don't want another one, right? So, for instance, when, when presidents come into office and start issuing lots of executive orders, we get all testy, right? We're like, no, we don't, this, this is a democracy, this is a republic, we, this, there's no kingdom of America, and we, we, we rebel against that kind of thing. I, I think that we sense, rightly so, that a king has much more direct and much more... Um, uh, absolute authority than a president or a prime minister or some leader like that does. A, a king is a whole different ballgame. And yet we see the word king, and especially the word kingdom, all over the Bible and all over the Gospels. And, and, and as we no noted, Jesus' first public words were something about a kingdom, and it was a kingdom of God. Now, if God claims to be a king, in fact, if God claims to be the king, or even the king of kings, and if he claims to be our king, then even though we don't do king around here, we, we, we still need to, to, to get some idea of what king means. We need to do business with this word, because kingdom is going to be a real thing in our lives, even if it's not a, a real thing in our country or our nation. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start I often like to, to work inductively and figure things out from the grassroots, but I'm going to start today a little bit differently. I'm going to give you a definition of the kingdom of God. It's going to be helpful, I think, but it's not going to be totally helpful because we're not really going to understand it until we define the words that are part of the definition and understand what they mean. But I'm going to give you a definition that I think is very helpful and I think we can work with. It is not my own definition. It comes from a book I'm reading uh, called, uh, it's by a guy named Patrick Schreiner, and it's called The Kingdom of God and the Glory of the Cross. And here is the definition that the author comes up with, and I think it's a good thing for us to start with at least. Here is what he says. He says, the kingdom of God is God's rule over God's people in God's place. God's rule over God's people, okay? We have to define all these things, by the way, in God's place. It's interesting. I've been talking to people for the last two or three weeks in, in, in conversations, in prayer meeting, in, in elder meetings, uh, we, and I've asked a lot of people, what do you think the kingdom of God is? What are the aspects of the kingdom of God? When you think kingdom of God, how would you define it? What words would you use? And almost everybody comes up with the idea of God's rule. 
that, that the kingdom of God is in some sense where God's rule or God's reign is happening or will happen. And then a lot of people also come up with the idea of people, that a kingdom somehow involves people, and if there aren't people in a kingdom, then why bother with the kingdom, right? So there's, there's God's people are part of it. Uh, almost nobody has mentioned the idea of a place, which I find to be interesting, and it's true that the place part is gonna be a little bit more hard to understand and maybe even more controversial, but it's something that we have to look at eventually, what it means by God's place. But this morning, I don't wanna go there. I wanna start really in the middle because I think it's an important place to start, and, and I want to look at the idea of God's people. God's people. Who are the kingdom people? Who are the people of the kingdom? And, and I want to ask an important question, important certainly for us and also for people in our lives that maybe don't know Jesus, and that is how does someone become a kingdom person? How does someone enter the kingdom? How does someone become a citizen, if you will, of the kingdom of God? It's a huge question because even though we know that technically speaking, God is king of everybody, right? If you think about who God is, and, and, and there are no limits on his power, so you could properly say in some ways that the kingdom of God is everything and that God is king over everybody because God is king over every single molecule in the universe. So in that way, there's nothing outside of his kingdom. And yet, when you see the phrase kingdom of God in the scripture, it's defined in a much more restrictive sense than that. And as you might suspect, the people that enter the kingdom of God and the people who are, to use the word we use today usually, saved, are the same set of people. And so I want us to think about today what it means to be a kingdom person and whether that describes us, how people enter the kingdom, how did we enter it if we did, and then if not, how can we enter it? How can our friends and neighbors and fellow workers and fellow students and family members and other people that we care about enter it? And when they do, what will happen to them? What will change? Now, in this series on the kingdom, and we're just kind of setting it up here right now, but in this series, we're going to spend an awful lot of time in the Gospel of Matthew. Because if you know anything about the Gospel of Matthew, you know that it is the book par excellence on the kingdom of God. It is of the four gospels, it's the one that, that is really, that's the theme. It talks about the kingdom the most. But we're going to start today a little different place. We're going to start in the book of John, which is kind of unusual because uh, I, I did this for kind of for fun this week. This is how pastors have fun, by the way. I, um, I got my big uh, exhaustive concordance of the New American Standard Bible, which is a gigantic book with a couple thousand pages in it. You can use it to hold down just about anything. It's a great anchor. And it has every word in the Bible and every time it's used, including words like and and the and things like that. So, you know, I, I think even, it even gets to that level sometimes. But I looked up the word kingdom, and I looked at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and in the book of Matthew, the word kingdom, and there's some variations, so it's going to be off by a little bit, but the, wor the word kingdom appears about 55 times in the book of Matthew. Uh, Mark is, is, of course, shorter than Matthew, and kingdom appears 25 times in the book of Mark. Luke is technically longer than Matthew, I'm pretty sure, but kingdom appears 45 times in Luke, so that's a lot. In the Gospel of John, the word kingdom appears five times. Only five times. And in three of those times, it is when Jesus is talking to Pontius Pilate just before he goes to the cross, and they're talking about Jesus says that, that my kingdom is not of this world, and, and it goes back and forth. In fact, the word kingdom of God doesn't even appear there. There's only one place in the book of John where you see the phrase kingdom of God, and it's where the other two mentions of the word kingdom are, and it's in John chapter 3. So turn to John chapter 3. It's not going to be an unfamiliar passage. Most of you have seen it before, and I've probably preached on it five times. Uh, 
But, but it's a discussion that Jesus has with a very fascinating person named Nicodemus. And I want to go through this discussion with you today. So let's go ahead and read it now. John chapter 3, and it starts right in verse 1. And it says this, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We're going to stop there and not read John 3.16. Is that okay? But I, I really, really like this guy, Nicodemus. Um, maybe you do too. He's an honest guy. He is also a very courageous guy, if you think about it. Nicodemus has a lot to lose here if he's not careful. Because first of all, he's a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, he's a righteous guy, and he's got a reputation to uphold. And then beyond that, he is a member of the Sanhedrin. He is a member, he's a ruler. He's a member of the ruling body of elders in Jerusalem, which is the most powerful group of Jews in the world. They, they run everything with the religion of, of, of Israel and the temple and everything. And it is dangerous for this man who is at the top of, of his game to come down and to associate with a, a, a radical troublemaker kind of a teacher like Jesus. But, but Nicodemus, he can't stay away. And so he realizes he, he, that he's got to talk to Jesus, so he sneaks over to him at night when his associates on the Sanhedrin are not going to know what he's up to. And he says, I'm going to kind of paraphrase, he says, look, Rabbi. And when Nicodemus says Rabbi to Jesus, that's, he's, he's actually using a very respectful term to refer to Jesus that, that his friends wouldn't use. But he says, look, Rabbi, most of these guys that I hang out with won't admit it, but I know that you've come from God. I know that God has sent you here. Now, Jesus, if you know anything about the Gospel of John, Jesus spends most of the Gospel of John trying to convince people of this very thing, that he is from God, that his origins are from heaven. But this guy, Nicodemus, is already there. He already believes this. He's already admitted to Jesus that he knows that. And so Jesus does not need to spend any more time on this topic. And so he goes right for the jugular, doesn't he? He says, okay, Nicodemus, now that you understand that, he doesn't delay, he doesn't beat around the bush, he just lays it on the line. He says, Nicodemus, you need to know something here. In order to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. Now, 
Nicodemus hears two phrases here that he's got to try to get his mind around. And they're, they're big phrases. The, the first one he's going to have some familiarity with. He's going to know something about this thing called the kingdom of God. He's going to have some idea of what the kingdom of God is. Now, what is, this is important. What does Nicodemus think the kingdom of God is? Well, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, which means, among other things, that he believes in an afterlife. He believes that his body will be resurrected someday. And what Nicodemus is probably thinking about when he hears Jesus say kingdom of God is probably the future kingdom that is described by prophets like Daniel and Isaiah, other Old Testament people, about how at the end of the age that that this, this is the final expression of the kingdom of God when the righteous will spend forever with God in his everlasting kingdom where the unrighteous are going to be sent away into eternal judgment. Nicodemus probably doesn't have any concept of the kingdom of God being like here and now. He probably doesn't yet track with Jesus when Jesus says the kingdom is at hand or drawn near. But that's okay. We'll talk about that later, by the way. But that's okay because actually the people that enter the kingdom of God for eternity are the same people that enter the kingdom of God in the here and now. And Jesus realizes that, and he, he doesn't need to go there with Nicodemus and complicate the issue right now. Now, there's no question that Nicodemus wants to be a kingdom person. He wants to be one of the people that is in the kingdom of God, that can enter the kingdom. But he finds out that to get in, there's a phrase here which is totally foreign to him. And it's this phrase, born again. That's a weird phrase. He's not familiar with that. And so, and I think what's going on here, I think Nicodemus realizes that Jesus is speaking figuratively, but he wants to kind of extract some more information from Jesus, so he pretends to take him literally. He says, hey, well, I can't enter into my mom again and be born. How, how is it possible for an old man like me to do that? Because he's trying to, to drag out of Jesus some more information about what this born-again thing means. And Jesus goes there with him. He gives him some more info. He says, look, Nicodemus, in order to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. We'll talk about water for a second later. But then Jesus goes into this kind of explanation of what it's like to be born of the Spirit that ends with Nicodemus saying, how can this be? How does this happen? Now, let me do a show of hands here, because this is going to help us to understand this passage. Uh, How many of you remember being born? (laughs) Nobody. I don't either, actually. Okay. Um, So since you don't remember being born, from what you have heard of the event, um, what part did you play in making the birth happen? What did you do? I mean, somebody was supposed to push, right? But that wasn't you. Some, <laughs> pointing. So, someone, someone did a lot of something we call labor today, right? But that wasn't you. And it wasn't your dad either. He was like, eating ice chips and watching the... the the, the, the monitor on the, on the contraction machine and probably watching the game if it was a Saturday, right? The, the point is, for your first birth, for your natural birth, somebody else did all the work. You were involved in the sense that you showed up and you certainly benefited from the activity that happened that day. But, but somebody else made it happen. You had no clue what was going on or how it happened. And sure enough, Jesus explains to Nicodemus that this new birth is like that, that the Holy Spirit operates in ways we don't understand. And the process by which he he gives people this new life is mysterious, kind of like the wind blowing, and it's beyond tracing out. And that's a difficult thing for us to hear because we were probably expecting and hoping Jesus would give some step-by-step instruction on, okay, how to be born again. First do this, do this, the recipe for being born again. But we find out instead that it's actually up to someone else to make it happen. 
So where does that leave us? Is there a way that we can respond? Is there any part for us to play, or do we have to just wait around to see what the Holy Spirit will do? Is it even worthwhile to have a conversation like this if it's all up to the Spirit anyway? It's a good question. Well, fortunately, Nicodemus, or Jesus does not leave Nicodemus hanging. He doesn't leave us hanging either. And, and he gives us at least one strong indication of what the new birth is like from our perspective, not just from God's perspective. In fact, I think he gives us two indications, and I'll explain that later. But let me look at the one that we know about for sure. We definitely get one in verses 14 and 15, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, and it's kind of weird for us to hear, but he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, we know that Jesus' favorite name for himself is the Son of Man, so he's talking about himself. And Nicodemus is a Bible scholar, so he knows exactly the story from the Old Testament that Jesus is talking about. But it's a strange story. It's a very strange story. In Numbers chapter 21, the people of Israel, and the people of Israel are really good at complaining, right? They do it all the time. But in Numbers 21, they get really, really bad. And they complain against God in a particularly vicious way. And they accuse him of bringing them out to the desert in order to kill them. And then they start complaining about the manna that he's sending them every day to keep them alive. And they say that it's worthless and loathsome. Now this, obviously God gets mad. And he sends poisonous snakes into the camp, and the snakes start biting people. And after the people are bitten by these poisonous snakes, they're starting to die. And the people, realizing that they've gone too far, they say, we've sinned. And they cry out to Moses, and they say, we've sinned. Please help us. And God hears their cry, and he gives Moses some instructions. He tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and to put that serpent on a pole and to hold that pole up in front of the people so that any Israelite who is bitten by one of these poisonous snakes, all the person has to do is turn and look at the bronze serpent on the pole, and the, the, the effects of the poison will be reversed, and the person will not die. Now, this is very strange, because it almost looks like God is telling Moses to make like a graven image, first of all, right? Secondly, it's a snake. It's a bronze snake. Why a snake? A snake is the very symbol of sin. Why would we do something with that? And why, why do you, how do you get saved just by looking at it? Well, here's what's happening. When a snake-bitten Israelite with this deadly poison flowing through his veins that's about to kill him looked at the snake, he was indeed seeing what that snake was a symbol of. He was seeing sin. In fact, he was seeing his own sin. Looking on that snake meant owning his sin, owning up to his rebellion, his, his ugly, vicious rejection of God, and also his inability to do anything about it himself. That's what that meant. And that was the only way to find healing. John 3.14 tells us the same thing is in effect when it comes to Jesus. Being born again involves looking at Jesus on the cross and seeing not just a loving example, not just some generic Savior of the world, but your Savior and your sin. And pleading with God to forgive you of your sin on the basis of of what Jesus has done on the cross. That's the faith, believing in him to take away your sins. It means, first of all, coming to terms with your own rebellion, your own resistance to God's ways, and, and the poison that infects every single thing in your life, from the way you view other people to the way that you react 
to situations, to the way that you enjoy the pleasures of sin sometimes, to the way that you basically want to, to kind of run away from God and run your own life to, regardless of what God says about it. That's all inside of us. That's the poison that is flowing through us, and it's affecting every decision we make, every word that comes out of our mouths, really, and, and every, every, everything we do. And it's an ugly picture. It's not pleasant to look at, just like that snake wasn't very pleasant to look at. But it's also not pleasant to admit there's nothing you can do about it. And you can't earn your forgiveness. You can't clean yourself up. You don't deserve to be in God's kingdom. And that means that take, that's a hit to your pride, isn't it? But it's the only way you can enter the kingdom of God, on your knees. Honest about what you've done and where you've been. It, it's what Jesus called being poor in spirit back in Matthew chapter 5. We'll look at that actually very soon. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of God. It means looking inside of yourself for truth, for goodness, for, for the answers to life's deepest questions, for, for, for the ability to stand in a right relationship with your Creator. It means looking inside of yourself for all those things and coming up empty. It means finding absolutely nothing and realizing that it has to come as a gift from outside of you. It has to come as a gift from God because you have to despair of finding it on your own. That's what it means to look upon Jesus and your sin on the cross. You see, I think there's another indication here, actually, in this passage for Nicodemus of what it looks like to be born again, and it's for us too. And it comes from that word that we kind of skipped over in John 3, 5, the word water, water. Now, there's a ton of disagreement about what the word water means when Jesus says you need to be born of water. But let, let me tell you what I think Nicodemus would most likely have understood when he heard this. Because if there's one thing that this Pharisee would have been familiar with at this time in Israel, it would have been the ministry of John the Baptist. Mark tells us, too, that a lot of people were going out, not just from Galilee, where Jesus grew up, but from Jerusalem and Judea. They were going to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. And a lot of the leaders were going out there, too. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were going out there. And they weren't necessarily being baptized, but they were kind of watching the proceedings. And I would not be surprised if Nicodemus himself hadn't gone out there to see what John was doing. But John's baptism was a scandal to people like Nicodemus. Because what John said was, I baptize you with water for repentance. So water here meant repent. It meant change your ways, change your mind, go another direction. And if there was one person in the world that most people in Israel did not think needed to repent, it would have been Nicodemus. If you think about it, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's one of the most righteous people in the world. He's also at the top of his game. Like we said, he's on the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He helps to run the temple in Jerusalem. And on top of that, he's honestly a really good guy, isn't he? He seems to be. So he's got all the boxes checked. He is, to put it bluntly, way more qualified than you or me to be in the kingdom of God. But Jesus is saying that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how righteous the people around you think you are because all of your righteousness is, as it says in Isaiah, filthy rags. It doesn't undo or cancel your internal brokenness, and it's not worth anything when it comes to getting into God's kingdom. No, you need to repent of that. Let it go. Consider it garbage like Paul, another Pharisee, did in Philippians 3 with all his righteousness. You see, to enter God's kingdom, to become a kingdom person, we all need to realize this. You don't just need a boost. You don't just need a, a little dusting off or even a lot of dusting off. You need a new life. 
You need a new start. You need a new identity. You need a new everything. You need to be born again. And God says he will do that if you come to him broken and empty-handed and ask him, and he will do it because of what Jesus did on the cross. As Jesus said one time to Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. But he has to do it. Now, I don't believe that Jesus is teaching here you need to be baptized to be saved. Do not hear me saying that. I believe, though, that he is reminding Nicodemus that water baptism, as he saw it practiced with John, and John didn't invent it, by the way, but John was a big practitioner of it. But John's baptism was a symbol of repentance, of turning your back on your own sin and your own self-righteousness and receiving new life. And no one is born again without repentance happening. Turning your back on your sin. First of all, seeing it for what it is. Seeing what it has done to you. Seeing what it has done to the other people in your life. Seeing what it has done to your relationship with God and what he thinks about it. And then to take that sin and to take it to Jesus who alone can take it away. And he did that on the cross by taking it onto himself. Now, most of us need to understand that. It's a good reminder, I think, on this Communion Sunday because we all need to hear the gospel no matter how long we've been saved. But I want to take it a little bit farther this morning, and I want to come full circle and look again at that word that we started with, which was the word kingdom, remember? Because it's used here by John for really the only time where he says kingdom of God. And I think we're going to find out a lot about what it means to really have this repentance and this new life and what it means to be a kingdom person and what it does to us. Because Jesus tied this whole experience of being born again, not to getting a card that says get out of hell free, you know, or, or joining some club, or, or you know, he, he, he said it was coming into a kingdom, a kingdom. And a kingdom has laws. It has rules. It has, it has principles. In fact, it has a king, doesn't it? So whatever else a kingdom has, it has the authority to tell its people how to live. And it was interesting, in prayer meeting, one of the people that I was asking, what is the kingdom? And one person said that the kingdom of God was God's way of doing things. God's, I thought that was pretty good. That's, there's a lot of truth in that. The problem is that for most of our lives, before knowing Jesus, or even apart from knowing Jesus, we have another way of doing things, don't we? There's a whole other way of doing things, and, and we're used to that, and that's because we're actually, whether we know it or not, we're part of another kingdom. We're part of another kingdom. Colossians 1 says this, that when we come to Christ, we are transferred from something called the dominion of darkness, that's Satan's kingdom, to something called the kingdom of light, which is God's kingdom. We are actually transferred from one kingdom to another. So do you know what you did when you came to know Christ? If you're a believer, do you know what you did when you came to Jesus? You defected. You really did. Remember that word we used to hear a lot back in the days in the Cold War when people would come from a totalitarian regime, usually a communist country, and they would come to a free nation like America, and they would say, I defect. I don't want to be part of this other government anymore. I want to escape from that, and I want to be part of, of, of a new place where I have freedom. Defection. And it's interesting, when someone defects, you know what happens? They automatically become a sworn enemy of their former country because they have denounced that country and its government, and they have embraced a new one. That is precisely what happens. You need to know this. When you enter the kingdom of God, you, you defect when you repent. You declare yourself an enemy of your old kingdom. The problem is, 
even after we've done this, we're still, we're still really used to doing things the way the old kingdom did them, right? I mean, all our reflexes still follow the old patterns we learned when we were part of the dominion of darkness. But when we're born again, something actually, this is important, something actually happens to us. There is a subjective change that takes place at that time in our lives when we're born again. God does something to us that changes us. Now, I know that some of you remember the time that you came to Christ, and you can actually describe some of that change that took place. Others, maybe it was too long ago, or you thought about it as more of a process, or it's more foggy, or you're thinking like, I don't know, was, it, was, it really, was there really a change? Well, let me describe, if you're a believer, let me describe what happened to you, what you experienced when you were born again, and it's going to be kind of a weird illustration, but I think you'll get it. What happened was the Holy Spirit placed a new gyroscope in your heart. Now, most of you probably have some idea what a gyroscope is and what it does, but a gyroscope is a rotating device that is placed inside of things like airplanes and satellites and torpedoes and and guidance systems. And and the reason that it uses a gyroscope is because that gyroscope always keeps this, because of the way it spins, it always keeps the same orientation no matter what happens to the vehicle that contains it, whether it tilts or turns or, or flips upside down or whatever it does, the gyroscope stays the same. And so the vehicle or device in which that gyroscope is installed can always find which way is up. It can always get oriented in the right direction. So if you, if you want to maybe spiritualize it now, your gyroscope is that internal mechanism in your heart that actually enables you to know what right side up is and enables you to live right side up. The problem is, before we come to Christ, our gyroscope is actually inverted. It's going the wrong way because it came from the wrong kingdom. And, so, and, and it's reinforced all the time by the world around us. And so what happens is when we're doing things the world's way, when, when we're living for ourselves, when we're living for money or, or pleasure, or we're, making, we're living trying to make ourselves look good and other people look bad, and we're making up our own rules, and, and we're, we're following our heart, you know, we, we actually tend to feel like we're living right side up when we're doing those things. It isn't until the Holy Spirit comes in and plants this new, strange thing inside of us, this kingdom seed, this, this, this new device, if you will, this new gyroscope that has a whole different orientation and it follows a whole different set of principles. It's not until that happens that we begin to realize that in, in many ways we've been living upside down. And, and you know what? That's when the struggle begins. That's not the end of the struggle. That's the beginning of the struggle because this new element that has been introduced into our hearts, it faces resistance. You see, even though we're now kingdom people and we have this new gyroscope, it's still hard to turn over. It's still hard to roll over in the right direction because if, you know, it's kind of like when you're underwater and you're trying to figure out which way is up, you get, you get a little bit seasick. You get a little bit disoriented. You get dizzy. But this internal device that the Holy Spirit put there is always going to be reminding us of the parts of our life that are still upside down, even as we allow God to turn them right side up one area at a time. And so our values, our desires, our, 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 uh, our words, our thoughts, our friendships, our marriages, our work lives, our families, our financial decisions, our prayer lives, All these things, as the Holy Spirit's gyroscope talks to us in a way and God turns them right side up, they begin to align us with God's kingdom. 
And although we have been kingdom people, we start to look and act a lot more like kingdom people. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. One really good um, translation of that might be this. Reorient your life. Because God's way of doing things is about to be available. Reorient your life because God's way of doing things is about to become a reality. Now next week, what I want to do is begin looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And when we start doing that, the first thing we're going to see is just how upside down the kingdom of God seems to be compared to the the world's typical way of thinking. But but for this Sunday, as we close and we go to communion, I just want to give you a minute to consider, first of all, where you are with respect to the kingdom of God. Is that repentance and new life something that has happened to you or not? And if it has, have you forgotten how radical and life-inverting it was supposed to be? Has the Holy Spirit's voice been telling you lately and maybe you've been listening, and maybe you've been saying, I don't want to hear it, but has the Holy Spirit's voice been telling you lately that something is upside down in your life? Or maybe if you don't really know Jesus, you don't really have this new life, God is still inviting you to come into a relationship with Him even today, to look upon your sin, to realize that it is what it is, and then to give it to Him because you can't do anything about it yourself to turn away from it and turn away from your own self-righteousness, thinking you can do it yourself, and to turn to Jesus. And then we'll celebrate that new life when we take communion.